Good morning, Grace Gospel Church. This is very loud. <laughs> I knew when this clicked and you could hear it, something was something was gonna be gonna be up with the sound. <laughs> uh, I tend to get a little passionate, so if you could lower, yeah, you could. Uh, this morning, uh, we're continuing our summer psalm series. Uh, the Psalms is so wonderful. Last, last week we talked about Psalm 38, which deals with the, the human emotion of sorrow. And this week I thought we would uh, look at the, a happier Psalm. And so we're looking at Psalm 84 this morning. Psalm 84 has been described by Charles Spurgeon as the pearl of the Psalms. It captures a picture of the blessed life of a worshiper of the Lord in the house of the Lord. It's, it's a deep blessedness that's described, a picture of worship of God which satisfies and fulfills. And the psalm is loaded with, with joyful expectations of worship. And, and as we read it together, the sheer excitement and emotion, uh, the joy concerning the temple worship, it's just exuding from this psalm. It's so, so evident. This psalm serves as a description of that special thing that fulfills humans. And indeed, every human is on a journey seeking a special thing. All People of all ages and all religions are all journeying for something. Everyone is constantly longing for something in their hearts. And yet, if we look around and see people on this journey, so many are so so miserable, and they're selling themselves short of the blessed, fulfilled life of worship that is described in our psalm this morning. Psalm 84 captures it so, so wonderfully. That which truly fulfills what, what is truly worth seeking, that is intimate relationship and worship of the Lord. God is the centerpiece, the object that, that all humans are longing after. And, and the worship of God is the definitive blessed life finally fulfilled. And so now let us read this joyful psalm together and learn as the Spirit opens up our eyes and causes us to understand and to obey what is written. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 84, Holy Scripture says this. How lovely are your dwelling places, Lord of armies. My soul longed and even yearned for the courtyards of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may put her young. Your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, Selah. Blessed is the person whose strength is in you and whose heart are the roads to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob, Selah. See our shield, God, and look at the face of your anointed. For a day in your courtyards is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing from those who walk with integrity. Lord of armies, blessed is the person who trusts in you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we pray right now that you would glorify yourself by causing us to understand these deep things in Scripture. And Lord, we cannot understand them without you. So open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are. And Lord, let us all leave this place forever transformed and forever thankful for the Son of God which you have sent, that we may dwell with you. Lord, bless this time we have together now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So three times in this psalm, as, as I was preparing, I noticed something. Three times in verses 4, verses 5, and verse 12, there's this sort of beatitude formula. Now, those of you who know what the beatitude is, it's basically a, a blessing. Blessed are those. Blessed is the person. And this word blessed, it actually is a description, I believe, of the ideal intended life that God designed, which correlates with our purpose, which correlates with our happiness. This word blessed actually in the Hebrew translates happy, asher. It translates happy. These are descriptions of People worshiping with a happy demeanor because they are fulfilling their design and the, the longings that were put within them. But this isn't just sort of like a, a subjective little happiness that, that we're talking about. Again, this is an objective happiness, a description of the fulfilled life of worship, what it is we were designed to do. It captures fulfillment purpose, and indeed it does capture emotive pleasure. But notice that all of this is rooted in the worship of the Lord. It is rooted in nothing else. And so this morning we see from the psalm that God is revealed as the true source of the blessed and fulfilled life. He is the true source of all that will ever satisfy us. And if you take one thing away from this message, let it be this, that intimacy with God is the blessed life. The blessed life is not about your car or your house or how many degrees and letters you have by your name. The blessed life is knowing and worshiping our Lord intimately. And so in this psalm, we see three descriptions of this blessed intimacy Three descriptions of this ideal, blissful happiness that the human is to live out. Three things that must be present if we're to have fulfilled lives. And again, one of these things are not money or a spouse or, or some kind of honor or a car. It's the worship of the Lord. It's knowing God. This whole psalm is, is a journey in which one longs to worship the Lord. One longs for intimacy with that thing that satisfies, that person that satisfies the Lord. And that's, friends, that's what we're designed to do. And that's why we should, we should listen and we should engage. If you know the Lord, I pray this reinvokes just and reinvigorates you to seek him even more. You know, he's infinite. You can't learn everything about him. He's always going to be worthy of new worship. And if you don't know, know him, I pray to introduce you to that person that can fulfill you, that can satisfy what needs to be satisfied within you. And so we see three things that are described with, with this idea of blessedness. We see that the blessed life of intimacy, it longs to dwell with God. In fact, the blessed life does dwell with God in verse 4. We see in the, secondly, the blessed life of intimacy draws from God's strength. It draws from God's strength. And lastly, we see that the blessed life of intimacy, it trusts in God in all things, trusts in his goodness. And so let's look at each one of these. Let's start with the blessed life of intimacy. It longs to dwell with God. Notice the Psalms heading. We didn't read it. Uh, this morning, but if you have your Bible, you can read it. It says, For the music director on the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Whenever something is given, usually for the music director, that means that this was a psalm that was used for corporate worship gatherings in the temple or the tabernacle. Now, this is kind of ironic that this is sung in the temple because the content of the psalm is from the perspective of a journeyer going to the temple. Also, uh, and so what we see here is that this psalm is actually reminding those who are dwelling with God, reminding those who are worshiping God of, of that longing that they had felt, of that anticipation that they had felt. And, and, and the whole thing of, of them worshiping in the temple, it's a consummation of that. It's, it's the joyous fulfillment of that longing. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. 
They are ever praising you. Selah, a call to contemplate. Imagine the great joy that the congregation felt as they sang and contemplated the fact that they themselves were participating in a glorious worship and intimacy with God. They were themselves now participating in great worship at the temple. What fulfillment, what blessedness, what a description of how things should be. And this psalm by the words, it beckons them to contemplate the, again, once again, the experience of longing to dwell with God that they had on the journey, to relive it, to recognize that God meets all of those expectations and will continue to do so in their lives. Let's look at verse 1. It says, How lovely are your dwelling places, Lord of armies. My soul longed and even yearned for the courtyards of the Lord. The pilgrim wants to go to the temple. He, he wanted to go to the courtyard. He prefers it. He describes it here as something that's lovely and longed for and yearned after. Some translations say he faints for the courtyard. The idea here is this, this person journeying to the temple, they are incomplete. They need to be in the presence in the house of the Lord. An idea of feeling incomplete without dwelling with, with the Lord. And it, it says here, the dwelling places are described as lovely. Now when it says lovely, it's not like, oh wow, what a lovely building or a lovely waterfall. Or that's a, that's a lovely little, you know, park. The word here actually in Hebrew can tra be translated beloved. Now what is it that made the temple of God beloved to the journeyer? It was the very presence of God. Notice it says, how lovely are your dwelling places where God is. Now, now certainly the temple architecture was probably something to behold, especially King Solomon's temple but regardless, this is not referring to, to physical beauty. In fact, when this was written, who knows, the temple might not have been around. They might have been traveling with, with tents still, worshiping the Lord. We don't really 100% know. But what we know is this, the dwelling places of God, that is what is lovely. That is what is beloved. There's no mention, again, of cedar or gold in this psalm. The sheer excitement, the, the, the sheer longing is rooted in God himself and nothing else. It has to do with where the presence of God is. And remember, again, this time, the temple was the place where God met man. It is the place where the Lord dwelt. It's where mankind met with God. It was, it was worship at its finest and most intimate in the day. And so where God was, the temple, it became lovely. It became beloved to the journeyer who is seeking God. Notice that it is a high view of God that is directing the entirety of this psalm. It is viewing his presence in such a way where wherever he goes, it necessarily becomes lovely. It necessarily becomes beloved. This, the psalmist didn't love the temple because of the architecture. He loved it because God was there and that was enough. And he alone was his true delight. Now friends, consider this. We no longer worship in a Jewish temple as John 4 says, that temple was not to be forever. That wasn't the permanent dwelling place of God. The veil has been torn. Now he makes a home in, in you and I and in everyone who calls upon the Lord. And this is language all over the New Testament that God dwells inside the hearts of a believer. Ephesians 3, 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, John 14, 23, Romans 8. God has made his new home in his saints, in his bride. It's even more intimate. It's even more beautiful. It's even more beloved. And that longing for God, that, that yearning for completeness is met. And we are blessed with his presence living inside of us because Jesus Christ has poured out his blood for, for us to draw 
to draw us to himself that he may live in us. He is the fulfillment of our longings. And who are we that he has dwelt in our hearts? That he has given us a precious union with him. That he has made us lovely and dwells in us. That he has bestowed such an honor. Friends, consider the dwelling place of God. And let it bring fulfillment and and the blessed life of deep union to God that every soul yearns for. Let, Let Think and meditate on what Christ has done and be thankful that he now dwells in us. Christ can fulfill every yearning, every longing that we have. And secondly, consider this. Consider what this means for the New Testament church. Consider what this means for us every Sunday as we meet together. Brothers and sisters, when we gather in a church, what makes this thing that we do lovely is not this building. It's not our programs. It's not our events. It's the fact that that God is dwelling amongst us. We are his bride. There is union you know, even, even this morning we're praying in the prayer room before service and people are talking all about things in the message. I'm saying, wow, God is in this person. And as we're talking, I'm being edified. What a wonderful thing that the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of the believers and we come together as his church. What a beautiful thing to long for. And indeed, yes, God dwells in me, but you know God is infinite. He also dwells in you. And so I can love God and and how he's, he's filled me. And then I can look at you and say, wow, God is in you too. What a beloved thing. What a beloved person. And then we can be transformed and we can love one another. It's an amazing gift that God has given us. It's what makes church so beautiful. It's why we should all long to see one another. For, for if you are his, he dwells in you, and, and I cannot resist but to love you, for God is in you. He has made you beloved. This is the heart that we should have on Sunday mornings towards one another. Secondly, we see here that this longing for God, it involves every part of us, our physical bodies, it involves our hearts. Look at what, this, what, what is said here, verse 2, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Again, a crying out, a singing for joy unto the living God. This is an authentic reaction to the living God for anyone who truly knows him. Uh, Notice the the version we used here in the New American Standard. It, It translates this cry out, sing for joy. It's a natural outburst of exuberance for a God who is alive. This isn't duty for duty's sake. Right, This is an appetite for God, as C.S. Lewis put it on his commentary on, on this psalm. A joyful craving for him. And it captures much of that yearning that we mentioned earlier. But again, notice the nuance here in this section. There's dual aspects to what is singing for joy. It is both crying out with the heart, the inner man, the desires, and the flesh. Right, the, the heart symbolizes in Scripture those innermost desires, that, that w- which is what we delight in. And indeed, there, uh, indeed, it is ideal that we have uh, the same blissful, emotive desire and delight that, that God has indeed for himself in the Trinity. That's what we were invited into according to John 17. That should be what excites us. That should be what our hearts are delighting in. We should... should be living for God himself. This is what our hearts should cry out for. When we talk about what we want in life, it shouldn't be things. It shouldn't be people. It should be the Lord. We should see him as that beautiful treasure, that object which our heart desires to worship. Delight yourself in the living God. Let your heart sing for joy to the living God. Don't suppress that emotional delight. Again, we learned last week the suppression of, of bad things in us. It's not necessarily indicative of Christian maturity. And neither is it mature to pretend that God is not the best possible thing to ever exist. All right? That's not maturity. Maturity is delighting in the Lord. Having your heart sing for joy. The inner man desires the living God. Don't 
let duty for duty's sake slip in. I've seen it slip in the, in the churches, and it's, it's an ugly thing to dictate how we interact with God, as if he's not good. He's good. Duty for duty's sake has slipped in, I think, through secular philosophy of like Immanuel Kant. That is not the Bible. The Bible is, I delight in you, Lord. That's the Bible. To have joy in him, to praise him. You know, there, there are commands to be thankful continuously and, and doing so for duty, for duty's sake. You know, Paul Johnson said sometimes it's like medicine, then it's like, you know, some kind of dry cereal. But eventually, friends, we will see that it is a sweet dessert, that the Lord is beautiful to us. He truly is good. We should see him as he is. Be, let, let him be appetizing to you and to your heart, just as he was for the psalmist. But then there's this other aspect here of, of the flesh that, that emphasizes perhaps physical aspects of worship. Remember a few months back, we had a message on thinking biblically about true worship from Romans chapter 12. Remember that in light of all of the knowledge of God and recognizing who he is, there's an appropriate response. And it's that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Friends, do you know if God dwells in you, that you're really, uh, it's, <laughs> you're really his possession and that, that you should say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? That's the blessed life, is waking up thinking, Lord, what can I do for you? What, what do you want from me? And living, having your actual body be, be something that submits to the Lord and that, that sings for joy unto the Lord as well. Think about this. They were probably traveling to the, to the, uh, the temple here for some temple worship perhaps a festival, and, and oftentimes they were doing ceremonial sacrifices, right? This was like not what we would think as fun, right? They're slaughtering animals. Who here is excited to slaughter an animal? Yeah, I don't think so, right? But, but in their hearts, because they're looking at the law of God, they're looking at what they were commanded to do, they're excited to go to the temple to worship. And they're worshiping not just by singing and clapping, they're worshiping by sacrificing. They're worshiping by obedience. And friends, likewise for us, our heart, our flesh, all that we are should be for the Lord. That is the blessed life. That is, is the vision of, of the glorious, blessed life. That's the design that God has for us. Not to be independent, but, but to be a servant unto him. And it is a happy thing. It is not miserable. It is happy. In every act of worship, we should long for him with all we are. Emotionally, get your emotions in check and say, God, I... I don't think you're so delightful right now. Let me meditate on the gospel and remind myself how good you are. And then get your actions also to fall in line. Say, God, because you're so good, I'm going to serve you. And, and by the way, that's a good, a good trick if you don't want to serve in your own strength, um, is meditate on the gospel. You know, it says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Meditate on that gospel. Let that work of Christ drive you to do all you do in worship. That's the blessed life. We should long to obey, long to love God with our heart and our flesh, with all of us, the entirety of our being. We were built for God. And all they are, there's crying out, singing the joy of the living God. The body and the heart was made for the worship of the Lord Lastly, uh, we see here, this in verse 3, that longing for God, it's open to all. It's, it's interesting in that verse 3, he talks about now uh, birds. He says, the bird has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may put her young. Your altars, Lord of armies, my king and my God. Imagine the sojourner approaching the temple, and he sees a creature as common and as insignificant as a bird. You know, they're not even made in God's image. They're just birds. And here is this, this thing that was created. And it's a beautiful thing that this bird is making its nest amidst the temple of God. 
a bird making a home where the very presence of God dwelt. This is the God that they they yearned for in verse 2. And this God allows birds to approach him. Not only to, to approach him, but to make their home in the temple, perhaps even the altars. Friends, this symbolizes an incredible open invitation for all to draw near. Those who are longing for the temple can come freely. One doesn't need to have a seminary degree. One doesn't need to have credentials. All are welcome into the courtyards of the Lord. You know, even the non-Jew could go in the courtyards of the Lord. And that's something that's emphasized here, that even the courtyards are better. Even the courtyards are good. And all are welcome. And here we see even the bird, it gets closer to the altars. And how much more for you and I? where the veil has been torn. All are welcome because of the work of Christ. All can come freely, freely drink, freely eat without price, experience his grace and his mercy, enter the courtyard. The point of verse 3 in Psalm 84 is to emphasize the lowliest of creatures, such as birds, find their home in the altars of, of the Lord. And it illustrates this accessibility that, that, that is made available to us. And even more so because of the work of Christ. That was just an, an old illusion, a, a, an image. But the real thing is found in Christ. And, and you and I and anyone is welcome. God's presence is not limited to a select few, but it's available to anyone who would seek, anyone who would long. Friends, you might feel unworthy, You might feel insignificant. And might I add, if you're there, you're you're on the good track because you could could be like the Pharisees who didn't recognize that fact. To some extent, humans are creatures. We are somewhat insignificant. We are sinners. We mess up. Who is man to approach God? But there's good news. All can approach God through Christ Jesus, the mediator the mediator between God and man, we can now draw close to the Father. According to Hebrews 10, not only to that outer courtyard, but to the holy of holies, we can approach and have intimacy with with the Lord. And it is Christ that has made this precious union, which we were built for, a reality. It is Christ that can let us approach And then look at what happens, the description of when they're finally at the temple. Here's here's that that, uh, beatitude language. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. So we see finally verse 4. The holy admiration from the pilgrim of those who are worshiping at the temple. He contemplates those who are at the temple and says, those who are in God's presence, those who are dwelling there with God, are living the blessed life. They are doing what what humans should do, what people should do. They are fulfilled. Remember, blessed means happy as well. They are ultimately happy, and there is intimacy with God. They are doing what they are designed to do, drawing near and experiencing God in worship. But notice that those who dwell in the house, it's, it's not a sort of a one-and-done mindset. Like, all right, okay, let's praise God. Woo-hoo, all right, I'm leaving. Right? They are ever praising God. Again, again, they praise. Once they're done praising, they don't become stale. With, with God and who he is and say, oh, I figured him out now. He is the infinite Lord. And it says those who dwell are ever praising, continuously worshiping. In the longing for God, the blessed life is both intertwined with the journey and realized at the destination. It is both an eternal longing and an eternal fulfillment paradoxically at the same time. I hope you understand that. That means as you're longing for the Lord and as he's filling you, you can't get enough. 
We can't get enough. You guys know Christ is the center of all of creation? In, in heaven, two billion years from now, we will be worshiping again, ever praising the Lord. Remember the angels in heaven described in Revelation who cannot stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain? We who encounter God likewise also should be continuously praising. We praise again and again. We were designed not just to worship God, but to worship God and enjoy Him forever. This is intimate relationship with God. Invitation to the triune love. This is intimate relationship in the worship of God, and it's the very meaning of human existence. It is the blessed life. It is, again, both eternal longing and eternal fulfillment in God that only an infinite being could meet. It is that thing that so many long for, to worship a being who is infinite and whom there is nothing greater than. And friends, so many are missing out, selling themselves short, So many are searching for lesser gods that will eventually fail in satisfying them and they will no longer be ever praising the way the Christian is. They can't satisfy their yearnings or their longings and they're left in misery. This is what the world has to offer. This is the deception of Satan. Again, later on it says better to dwell in the courtyards or to be at the threshold of the courtyards than to dwell in the tent of wickedness. It's all all lies, all empty. And they're missing out on the purpose of life itself. And this, friends, is the horror of hell. That the intimacy with the one true infinite God who satisfies us is missed out on. But listen, friends, for all eternity, we will never run out of reasons to worship Jesus. He will satisfy that eternal longing within us. We will be ever praising Him. We will be forever worshiping Him. We will be forever obeying Him. We will be forever bowing before Him. And such an intimacy with the one true triune God is nothing less than heaven. You know that God-shaped hole in every human, it's not just a cliche, it's real. I like cliches. I don't know about you, I think cliches become popular because there's some kind of truth to them. Like, if I'm grading papers, someone writes a cliche, I'm about it. I say, okay, good job. (laughs) That's just me. But there is that phrase, there's a God-shaped hole. And I believe it's true. Every human is longing for God. Don't miss out. You can be satisfied. The sparrow is welcome, and so are you. If you would just acknowledge Jesus Christ is God, that he paid the price for your sins and saved you from judgment, and that if you believe, you can start worshiping God right now and into eternity. Being at last satisfied and fulfilled, you can stop searching. The great paradox of humanity to to both eternally yearn and eternally be satisfied, it's all found in Christ. The only infinite being who can satisfy us. You know, the the new agers who are seeking, selling yourself short of the infinite. You search for a vague, impersonal God which centers around you. And friends, you are not infinite. Muslims seeking can never approach. They have no mediator. They're not invited into the triune relationship with God. Likewise, Jews who reject Messiah, they too are are only seeing a partial picture. They're not seeing this true uh, invite into eternal satisfaction in Christ Jesus. Hindus, their idols will eventually stop satisfying. The atheist is left with nothing but, but pitiful subjective meaning with no eternal significance but the Christian. The Christian has something that no one else has. The Christian has God. The Christian is invited into worshiping God for all eternity. The blessed life.
the happy life. Let's move on. We see the blessed life of intimacy draws from God's strength. It draws from God's own strength. Here's what it says, verse 5. Blessed is the person whose strength is in you and whose heart are the roads to Zion. Again, here's another description of the blessed life, that thing, that ideal that we are, are to be uh, submitting to, that thing, that description of, of what humans should do. It says they should get their strength from God. That's what humans should do. We were not designed to be independent. That, again, is the lie of Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve are having dominion over the world. The serpent comes in and says, hey, you can be like God. You don't need him. We do need him. We were designed to need him. That was the ideal, friends. And here it says, blessed is the person whose strength is in you. And whose heart is the road to Zion? Again, this description, it's one who desires the road to Zion. They, they desire to be where the presence of the Lord is, the holy place where God dwells. Again, this, this is kind of assumes the earlier point or builds off the earlier point that, that it's the blessed life to long for God in order to live that blessed life of fulfillment and intimacy. This desire to journey to where God is, it must be the pulse of your life. It must be in your heart, and it must be your deepest desire. But again, check this out. The ideal blessed person, yes, they want God, they long for God, they journey for God, it's in their hearts, but also the very strength they get for the journey comes from God. They are not yet where God dwells in Zion, but they are drawing strength for him, for, from him for the journey it, itself. Friends, this is what might be called uh, like an already not yet. Some have called, called it this, the already not yet the sense in which we long for, for Christ. We long for the return of Christ. We, even who are saved, are, are in a sense sojourners in this life. Hebrews speaks of that. And, and there's an eternal home, an eternal kingdom. And in this interim, for, for the Christian in the journey, where, we are, drawing our, where, where are we drawing our strength from? This is going to make all the difference to whether or not um, we're doing things blessedly or we're doing things as we ought to do them. The blessed person does not sojourn from their own strength, but in fact, the strength that we sojourn from is the strength of God. It comes from God himself. The sojourner, it's nothing more than a beggar who is graced by God's provision and who is drawing strength from God. Uh, I was reminded of the Pilgrim's Progress. Remember that book? And Christian is in the book, and he's constantly kind of slipping up and messing up. And really, uh, it's because in his own strength, without God's grace, without drawing from God's strength, he would have never made it to the celestial city. Right? But it is because of the strength that God gave him he got there. And likewise, friends, for you and I, it is the strength that God gives us that we sojourn to him. The sojourner or pilgrim on their way to the temple needs strength from God to get there. We're not climbing a mountain on our own. We must repent when we fail. We must rely on God's grace. We must rely on his divine instructions from the word. If we try to fight this fight on our own, it will be a miserable experience. It will be misery. The blessed life comes from one whose strength is in the Lord. That is the happy life. That is the happy Christian. Friends, let us not just be deceived into thinking that God is just a reward we get for our work or our pilgrimage. God himself is the strength for the pilgrim. The entirety of, of our journey and our destination is a work of God's grace. And so we must draw from that grace to move forward. We must get our strength from God. That's what we were designed to do. And, and again, personally, when I see the word blessed, my mind goes to, to God's design. I would argue that there is nuance to such a statement that entails uh, the reading perhaps going like this. Happy is the one who by God's good design relies on God's strength. We must be like children to enter the kingdom of God, remember? 
We must be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. To pretend to be independent is like uh, getting a two-year-old driving your car. It's going to be a disaster. Two-year-olds weren't designed to drive cars. They were designed to be held by their parents. We must be like children. Sit in that passenger seat, friend. Draw from God. Stop, stop trying so hard in your own strength. If you're tired in this journey, I invite you now to do what you were designed to do, to rely on him. Again, meditate on the gospel. Repent for trying to do things on your own. Trust in Jesus and yield to the Holy Spirit as he guides us in this life. You know, the Holy Spirit is a, a person who lives inside of the Christian and guides us in real space-time. It's not an abstract thing far off. He's here right now directing my words, directing your ears. Rely on him. Yield to him. Pay attention to him. He will get us where we must go, where we were supposed to go, to Zion, to the Lord's presence. We also see this with a person who relies on God's strength. Look at this. Life's not, oh, miserable. Oh, what an awful walk. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm like a little, and I know there's a place. We just talked about sorrow, but sometimes I'm just a little agitated with miserable Christians. Look at what it says about the blessed person who relies on God's strength. It says in verse 6, passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. Here is a description of a valley, a valley of Baca. And scholars are not really 100% sure uh, where this word Baca is derived from. It's not uh, derived from Star Wars, I know that much. Um, some have suggested that this Baca is related to, to weeping and, and so encapsulates an idea of sorrow. Others have proposed that it, it refers to an arid place that is dry where there is no water. In either case, the idea that the psalmist is getting across here by using it, it's to refer to what is commonly understood as a negative part of the journey, right? Whether it's weeping or whether it's just dry valley, right? Either way, it's supposed to point out something that's traditionally seen as negative. But look at what is said here. It says it becomes a spring. It becomes a spring, Indeed, in one sense, circumstances are tough. There are valleys of Baca, and, and, uh, which, which are arid and sorrowful. But in another sense, in a deeper and truer sense, the blessed person, they're happy. Their yoke is light. In those arid valleys, they become springs. They are covered with water. And this, is, this, again, is a description of the one who draws their strength from the Lord when they journey. It is good, and in a sense, it is delightful, it is easy, it is filled with blessings, even in what is commonly understood as a trial. Even in the dreaded valleys of Baca, there are springs for the one whose strength is in the Lord. You know, I think of examples of, of Christians in Scripture, right? Paul and Silas, they are singing hymns of joy in prison. Sometimes we just focus the in prison part as Christians. We like to be like, hey, we're promised a tough time. And indeed, that's true. But we are promised springs in the valleys. Singing, I can't imagine they're singing hymns out of duty for duty's sake. Oh, you know, Let's just sing a hymn, Silas. I would imagine it was deep joy. Or you think of Stephen who was stoned to death. He's looking at heaven, smiling amidst a valley. I've read about missionaries skinned alive, praising God, saying, off with the old flesh. I am being clothed in righteousness. How is this possible? Such saints have found springs in the valleys, and this is available to everyone who journeys and relies on the strength of God and not their own. This is the blessed life, the truly happy and fulfilled life, and not even the valleys can take that from us, for our strength comes from the Lord. Friends, again, I know there's a time to weep, but if 
if we are constantly bound and struggling and miserable, we must reckon with where our strength truly comes from. We must reckon with whether or not we truly believe that the Lord is satisfying. Indeed, circumstances are tough, but they're springs for us. He'll make them. Yes, sometimes we will struggle, but it seems to me that the pilgrim's journey described in, in, uh, described in Psalm 84 is dictated by blessings and joy that, that come from relying on God's strength, goodness, even in the valleys. There must be times of this paradox for the Christian where we are journeying in a difficult area, but where we at the same time are experiencing such grace from our God whose strength we draw from. That is the life of a Christian. Remember, again, verse 5, blessed could translate happy. Happy is the one whose strength comes from the Lord. This Christian journeys, and it, it, the journey doesn't need to be depressing Sorrowful, constantly miserable, rotten or duty-filled, horror, moralistic. It doesn't need to be that. It can be one of grace. It appears the scriptures have, have a picture of a more ideal, blessed journey. One which the person flourishes as they rely on the strength of God as they were designed to. Again, this doesn't mean it's all rainbows and butterflies all the time. But it means that there are springs in dark times for you and I. And that, it's, it's, and that the mere satisfaction of the Lord, drawing from his strength, it's all worth it. God is better than the dark times of our lives. That God's very intervention turns valleys into springs. He makes murky water and he purifies it and gives it to us to drink. He takes care of us in his strength and in his power. And that is good news. That makes the valley itself a refreshment to us. Friends, the trials you experience as you rely on God can become refreshment. Sometimes when I'm talking with people and they're talking about how sad they are, and I've said this to them, um, and, and I understand what it's like to be on the other side too, but I've, I've said this, I say, I almost envy you. Because God is so refreshing to you if you would draw on his strength. So refreshing indeed. One whose strength is in the Lord can rejoice amidst trials and they are blessed indeed. Here's what else it says. It says that they go from strength to strength. They don't grow weary. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. You know, this psalm, it seems to paint a picture of, of an I ideal, and the ideal seems to be such almost like a glorious ease for the pilgrim. Remember, the yoke is light. The burden is light and easy. This verse says, from strength to strength. Now, normally when we think of strength, we think of uh, like, a, uh, you know, after a season of strength where you're exercising or something, Usually, there's like a period of weakness, like, whew, I'm exhausted. Anyone who's been on a treadmill knows, all right? Sometimes you get the second wind, but sometimes you are just done. But here, strength to strength, not growing weary, not growing weary, because God's strength is never depleted. Again, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom, fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fail. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, indeed, there are times where we feel faint where we feel tired, where the valley is dry, and I don't want to judge and be like Job's friends and say it's all our fault, but, but we must reckon with this description in Psalm 84. We must reckon with Christ's words when he says, take my yoke, it is light, the burden is easy. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we fail, when we grow weary, it may be time again to abide in Christ for our strength, to rehearse the gospel and to, and to rely on the strength of the Lord instead of our own. It, it, in, the, in the end, look up and see where they end up. Look at this. 
They go, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God and Zion. Brothers and sisters, it's all God. And he will get us there. Justification is the work of God. Sanctification, being made holy, is the work of God. The two are tied together in a single work of salvation. And it is totally, totally dependent upon Christ for all of it. Stop trying to figure it out. And let's pray instead. Ask God to be our strength. Wow. Uh, <laughs> this is good. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just excited about this. Um, so if, well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. I don't want to get stuck on the time. Um, <laughs> as, uh, he's going to get us where we need to go. As the sojourner is, is, con- is contemplating the journey, he says, blessed is the person whose strength comes from God. And then he says, they will finally appear before God. They will finally appear before God. For those trying to do good deeds, to get God, uh, to get to God in your own strength, to climb that mountain on your own, it's not going to work. But the strength of Christ is sufficient for us. When we mess up, when we get things wrong, we can bow our heads and we can rely on Christ. And then he picks us back up and takes us takes us there. And because of his work, we will one day spend eternity in bliss worshiping God. Good news. Everyone will get there who relies on his strength. It's the blessed life. It's the ideal life. I pray we trust in God for strength in the journey. And for, and for that person, they will one day appear before God. Last point. The blessed life of intimacy trusts in God. Similar but different nuance here. Firstly, we see that trust entails calling unto God for help. We, who we, who we call out to tells us who we really trust in. And look at who the psalmist uh, calls out to here. He says, Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Selah, see our shield, God, and look at the face of your anointed. Interestingly, a psalm dominated by strength and and trust and delight incorporates verses of petition. This is a part of it. The writer of the psalm says, this glorious psalm that's filled with emotion and delight, he says, God, hear my prayer. Listen. See our shield, Lord. Look, God, at the face of your anointed. Indeed, there are times when the saint, even in this life, must plea with God. But see that the very crying out encapsulates a blessed life of trust. There is a crying out, but it is to God. And this shows who we trust in. Saying, Father, hear me, listen, see me, see this, look. The very crying is indeed a part of the blessed life. It is a comfort. It's the way we were meant to live. We cry out to God. We do not cry out to riches. We do not cry out to our own power. We do not cry out. We certainly don't cry out to politicians to help us. We cry out to one person, the Lord alone. And, and uh, something interesting here, especially about the politician's point, is notice verse 9 is referencing the earthly king, the anointed one, the shield of Israel. Leaders were very important during that time. Their actions determined the state of the entire nation, even the spiritual state, very often. And if this leader messed up, all of Israel would suffer the consequences And with this in mind, notice again who he's petitioning. He's not in his own strength, you know, relying on his own petitions to the king, to the earthly king. He's relying on a petition to the heavenly king, the one who placed the king there. The psalmist cuts the middleman. He doesn't put his full trust in earthly kings or materials or his wisdom or, or political action As easy as it would have been to trust in an earthly king, he trusts in the person who put the king there and calls on God to watch over all things, as we too should, trusting in the Lord alone and not any man. The crying out to God, it's indicative that God is the foundation of trust for the psalmist. And so he calls to him. When there are problems, who do we call to? Who do we Trust in, do we call friends and family first? Do we call, uh, you know, politicians? Do we call our, our banker? Or do we call God, who is in control of all of it? 
And you know, perhaps God might use these people, but really the source of our trust, the ultimate source, the one whom we should be gravitating to, the one we were designed to call out to, is our Father, the Lord himself. And, and we touched on this concept of calling out to God quite a bit uh, last week as well, so I encourage you to check out that sermon. For now, for time's sake, we'll move along and we'll see um, the next point here is that trust entails relying on his provisions. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a son. The Lord gives grace and glory. He withholds no good for things from those who walk in integrity. Uh, and, and notice this phrase here, the son. He is also a great provision for us by which we see and which we operate. And this comparison is actually quite dramatic. Uh, I mean, imagine for a moment a world with no sun. There would be no warmth. There would be no light. There would be no agriculture. We would instantly die. And here, the psalmist says, God, you are a sun. You give us warmth. We live by you. You provide everything that we need, O oh Lord. Some people say the, the sun is a God. Here, the psalmist says, no, no, God is like the sun. He's bigger than it. He provides everything we need. When we do nothing, we can trust that God is our, our son. He's going to do what needs to be done. He will grow our crops. He will bring us warmth to survive. He will provide everything. You know, when we run into troubles in this life, when we lose our job, when a family member dies, when a car breaks down, happened to me this week, when we lose our houses, we could get anxious and we could worry, or we could trust that God is our provider and that he withholds no good thing from us. The psalmist again says, God gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing. It says glory, honor, and splendor. Their idea of, his idea of weightiness. God is, is, is giving us, um, he's, he's viewing us weightily. He's giving us everything we need. He's honoring us incredibly as if we were royalty, right? That word glory is often associated with royalty. We get the best possible treatment from our provider. God only gives the best. His provisions are good. If you don't have it, it's not, it's, it's not good. For he withholds, it says here, no good from those who walk in integrity. If you're walking in integrity and soundness and trusting in God, you can be sure you have everything you could possibly need. Notice he says it gives grace, unmerited favor. We don't deserve any of these provisions. You know, God didn't need to create us. He wasn't lonely in heaven. He gives because he's, he's gracious, because he's good. He gives such good gifts to us. He is our, our provider. He is our son. Next, we see also protection. It says the Lord is a shield, a true shield, the one we can stand behind. No one can touch us. Trust is, again, what causes those who are, are persecuted and martyrs to have such blissful, joyous demeanor. They understand that nobody can penetrate the shield of God. And if, if Christ has purchased us and we belong to him, no power of Satan, no earthly army or government can truly hurt us or destroy us. Even if the body is torn in two, for, for the saint, there is a resurrection unto eternal life that is promised. We will ride with Christ, the Lord of hosts, and we will be forever under his protection. And, and do you believe that? Do you trust in that? You were designed to trust in that. You weren't designed to solve these problems on your own, friend. You were designed to stand behind a shield. And, and look at this, really the whole chapter has been hinting at this great power of God the protector. All throughout the Psalms we've seen this in verses 1, 3, 8, and 12. It says, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He's not weak. He's powerful. And this being is not just powerful. He's good and he loves you. He is seen as the commander of, of powerful angelic forces. Everything bends to his will. The kings, all earthly armies, everything submits to his rule. 
This is again why uh, that reference to the earthly king in 9 really emphasizes God as a true protector. God is the one who has the power. And friends, I pray we trust these descriptions of our Lord. We trust the God of armies, that he is our shield, that he is our son, that, that we have all we need for provisions. Do we act like this is true? We were designed to. Once you just stop fighting and trust the Lord, oh, then you will have the blessed life, the happy life, the fulfilled life. We were designed to depend on him. And we see this last point here. Trust in God entails preferring his goodness over evil. And by the way, I think this is objectively better. Objective goodness. It says, for a day in your courtyards is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of, the w- of wickedness. Verse 10 has sort of like comparative statements, right? It's saying, uh, it's saying that God's presence is better than, better than being somewhere else. It's preferable. It's more pleasant, more delightful, objectively good. It is better than anywhere else. Indeed, this again echoes that longing of the human heart. It's desirable. It's preferable. It's better to be with God than to be without. And notice the time comparison. Better is one day than a thousands elsewhere. It, it shows that there is qualitative superiority. Right? It's, it's like the difference between feasting on a top chef's gourmet dish and getting a thousand, you know, Big Macs. Right? There's a qualitative difference. Being in God's presence is just so good. Every minute of it, a second of it, is just so valuable and delightful for the human soul. Experiencing the worship that we were designed to experience is better than anything else. And and this comparative language is just descriptive, again, not of duty, but of delight. Actual preference. Objective good. Seeing it for what it is. Seeing God for who he is. The psalmist sees things clearly. He sees good as good. He sees evil as evil. And he delights in good. When we sin, we prefer evil. Chomping on Big Macs. Not good. We embody a lack of trust and, and, and trust in understanding that God is actually the best, the greatest possible being. If you can think of a being greater than God, that's God. He is infinitely great. And we can't, we must trust that He gives good gifts. We must trust that he is better than all else. Again, the deception was that God was not that great. That was the deception of the garden. And the restoration Christ gives us is is understanding that he is great. Understanding that he is perfect. And that he's now unified with us through Christ. We have a deep union with him. It's better. It's, It's the chef's gourmet meal. God's goodness is real and trusting in it leads to a better experience of life. The best experience. You see, the psalmist is not talking himself into this. It is a reality. The blessed demeanor as he understands the vision of intimacy with God as more valuable than anything else. The kingdom, remember, looks like a treasure hidden in a field which, which a person sells everything for because it's that good. God is that good. And we have the very presence of God himself. The next statement of comparison goes on to say, standing at the threshold is preferable than dwelling in the house of the wicked. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Happiness, the blessed life, fulfillment, what you were designed to do can only be satisfied in God. Blessed is the person who trusts in you. This is how humanity was intended to live happy, flourishing human lives. By design, we were designed to trust. Trusting in the Lord. Trusting that his laws are good and delightful. And ultimately, friends, trusting on the work of Jesus Christ. We are totally dependent upon him. We do nothing but trust in his work. But you know what? 
It's totally what we were designed to do. He's the main character. That's the picture of restored relationship. That's the beauty and delight of the heart of a worshiper. Would you embrace it today? Would you stop searching and at last be fulfilled in Christ? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that you have given us your presence within us, made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that that you sent your son to die for us, that we may live with you, oh God, and that you rose, that you're not dead God, but a living God. Oh God, let us delight in that and let us give all that we are because it's what we were designed to do. Lord, thank you for restoring us and Lord, we await the return of your son. Oh, we await the return. Oh God, let us be changed. Let us be transformed. Let us delight in you every step we take from this day forward into all eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.